Welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. I'm your host, Peter Komalafe, and you've guessed it, this is where we talk about money. And it is my mission to empower you, to help you make the best financial decisions possible. Why? Because money is a tool, life is for living. Let's go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Conversation of Money podcast. I hope you are all well. So after the first conversation that I had with Gary last week around wealth and wealth inequality. We are going to continue the conversation today. And we're going to be talking about something that when we use this language, you may not be fully aware of what it means. Um, and it may be a phrase that you've used before. The phrase that we use in the industry is quantitative easing. You might have heard this in, in news articles and across the news and stuff. But what we're going to do in this, in this uh, particular episode is break down what that means and break down what it means to you and Gary's thoughts, given his experience as an ex-trader, um, around what it means for you moving forward. I'm really excited to have Gary back because the response from the first episode last week has been really, really good. People have found it very, very insightful. Um, and it's always a great um, great time having a chat with someone who's got wider and broader knowledge than me on the podcast. And I think that's part of what I try to do is try and get into smarter rooms and He's in smarter rooms, basically. So it's a privilege for me. So I just want to welcome back, Gary. Welcome back, mate. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Pete. Glad to be back. Cool. Just to get this started, I want to do a reintroduction to, to you just so that anyone, if anyone's like listening to this episode and didn't catch the one last week, they can kind of get a good sense of you and then hopefully go back and listen to the to the episode last Monday. So can you give a brief introduction to you? And please don't be modest in, <laughs> in what you've achieved because what you've achieved is pretty amazing. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll try my best. Um, yeah, so basically recap of what we said last time. So I'm from Ilford, East London. Um, I grew up there from quite a sort of poor family, quite a poor area. Um, I managed to get into LSE, London School of Economics, which is like quite a prestigious economics university here in London. Um, when I was there, that university puts a lot of people into the city, into trading jobs. Um, and when I was there, everybody was applying for those jobs, but um, I didn't really know how to get them because it's a very sort of elite crowd. People from sort of people are there who sort of dads are like Arab billionaires and Russian billionaires and like mm -hmm. Chinese government members. And they all had these amazing sort of CVs where they'd all done amazing things like, you know, concert cellist and like, you know, Trek Sahara and stuff. Um, but I found out that Citibank hired one trader a year through a card game, which is basically a maths game. Mm -hmm. So um, like maths was my big thing back when I was a kid. I used to like win competitions and stuff. So I went in for that game. I won that game and I got a job as a trader in Citibank, basically. And I started working there in 2008, which was the financial crash um, mm -hmm. when everything went crazy. Um, the bank, which uh, the desk which I was working on, which was short-term interest rates, which is short-term loans, was very heavily involved because the credit crunch was about people not being able to get loans, basically. Yep. Um, people started making loads of money and like I was only sort of 21, but I managed to make like quite a bit of money just like copying what people were doing. Um, but a big part of that job was predicting, we used to predict would rates go up and down, which is basically would the economy go up and down. Mm -hmm. But in 2008, all the rates went to zero. So suddenly we were predicting when will the economy bounce back? Mm -hmm. And the history of that is mad interesting because basically everybody predicted every single year will recover next year. And like after about sort of two years of that, like getting into late 2010, early 2011, when those predictions kept being wrong, I started to think, okay, well, what are we missing here? And I thought long and hard about why is the economy not getting better? Why do people think it's going to get better? 
basically, I came to the conclusion that economists and traders didn't really understand, largely because they're all from such rich backgrounds, the importance of inequality in the economy. Mm-hmm. All the money that was going in was going to the rich people. They're not spending it. They're just using it to buy houses and stuff. So the economy is not getting better. And furthermore, the economy is not going to get better because we're not fixing this. So I started to bet very aggressively there will be no recovery. Mm-hmm. And by the end of 2011, I was Citibank's globally most profitable trader on the back of this like really pessimistic prediction. Um, so that put me in this sort of mad place of like being really successful by making really pessimistic predictions. And everyone in the bank was like, yeah, well done, mate. Do it again next year. <laughs> um, and like, after like sort of six months, one year after that, I was just like, look, I can't do this anymore. I think like I need to try and figure out ways to communicate to people what's happening because you know i believe then and i still believe now that really as a society we're not getting on top of inequality we're not reducing it if we don't reduce it things are not going to get better that means things are going to get worse for ordinary people so i wanted to find ways to get out and communicate with ordinary people how to do that so um yeah i went back to oxford and spent a couple of years studying trying to see if i could get the academics on side but they were just a bunch of rich guys in capes and they wasn't really interested <laughs> um and so yeah the last like couple of years i've been out writing in the media writing articles, making videos on YouTube, just trying to communicate to people, just trying to give people the information about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Because I think often, and I know you agree with me on this, like people talk about economics in the media, they're not easy to understand, they're not clear, they're not accessible for ordinary people. Um, So yeah, Matt, they're trying to tell people what's going to happen, trying to tell people what we need to do if we want to make things better. And uh, yeah, getting the information out to ordinary people, that's what I'm doing, same as you, Peter. Amazing. Can I just go back on, a, on one thing, mate? Because I, I said this on an IG Live yesterday when I took some questions from people. And I kind of, I did kind of want to like equate what it means to be the top trader in a bank like Citibank in 2011. I mean, roughly globally, and this is not just in the UK, this is globally, which it takes some going to do that. How many traders are there, would you say, across City globally? Okay, so City is like a is like a uh, amalgamation of City Bank and what mm-hmm. used to be called Salomon Brothers. So mm-hmm. they're kind of separate. So I was a top trader in City Bank, which is foreign exchange, short-term interest rates, emerging markets. I would say globally, that's something probably like 200 or 250 traders across wow. the world. Yeah, wow. something like that. Yeah. So the reason why I pulled that out, guys, is that if you're listening to this, when you say, you know, top trader globally, top uh, most profitable trader globally, that's out of 250 highly skilled guys who studied, who really understand markets and understand all of the, the stuff on Instagram that goes and missing, you know, technical analysis, you know, understanding how markets work to be number one is a huge, huge, huge achievement. And I think this is particularly important for what we're gonna talk about today in terms of quantitative easing. I don't wanna use that phrase because I don't like to use um, jargon on the podcast. So I'm gonna back this over to you, Gary. What is quantitative easing in simple terms for everybody that's listening? Okay, we're starting off with the big question. Okay, I think the easiest way to describe this is in the context of what's happened with COVID, okay? Mm So obviously COVID, massive disaster. I'm not going to get into the health of this, right? I'm an economist, right? Massive mm-hmm. economic disaster, right? Um, if the government don't do nothing, you know, straight away, loads of people lose their jobs, can't work, you know, can't pay the bills, you know, can't put food on the table. It would have been a massive disaster, right? So the government needs to come in and support. Otherwise, we're literally seeing people going homeless, people going without food, right? So it took a massive amount of money to pay for things like the furlough scheme, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the total amount of uh, 
money the government spent on COVID was about £450 billion. To put that into context, that's about £10,000 per adult in a country. Mm-hmm. Where does the government get this money, right, in an economic disaster? Okay, so normally the government will raise money through taxes, which we, we all understand pretty much, mm-hmm. or through borrowing, which largely comes from wealthy individuals, you know, or maybe pension funds, but wealthy individuals lend the money, right? So normally you tax or you borrow, right? But during COVID, the government did something unusual, which is they borrowed the money, but they borrowed the money from the Bank of England. Now, the Bank of England, you know, it's not like Lloyds or Citibank. That is um, a government bank, basically. Mm-hmm. And this bank is unique in that they are the only bank in the country, well, in the world, that has the ability and the legal right to print British pounds, right? These are the guys who literally make the currency, right? Like mm-hmm. they make money in the literal sense, they print money, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they borrowed 450 billion pounds, 10,000 pounds per adult from the Bank of England. And the Bank of England printed the money. So this, I think, sometimes when people hear that, they kind of think it can't be that simple. You can't just print money. But these guys, you and I can't, but the Bank of England can. They, can. they, they yeah. are the guys. Like the, Take out a bank note. It's got written on it, Bank of England. You know, those mm-hmm. guys printed it. They're allowed to print it. You know, they have a team of economists that work there that make the decisions what to do. And in COVID, they decided we're going to print £450 billion and lend it to the government. But it's, it's quite complicated, right? Because the Bank of England is part of the government. It's mm-hmm. an independent branch of government. So... What's happening here is the government as a whole, we take, you know, the government in Westminster and the Bank of England are basically just printing the money that they have used to support the economy throughout COVID. Okay. Um, And that's not normally the way that government financing works. Right. Um, Just to back up and explain what QE is, because this is the question, quantitative easing is what we refer to. That's the name that we use to refer to when the, Bank of England lends money to the government, mm-hmm. technically. But I wouldn't get too tied up in the terminology because, you know, as you know, economics has a lot of complicated terminology. The most important thing is to understand what is actually happening, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the government is spending a lot of money and it's, it's newly printed money. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, the, it's the Bank of England that prints it and lends it to the government, which means technically it counts as government debt. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not normal government debt, right? Because... It's government debt that is borrowed from another branch of government that mm-hmm. printed the money, right? Mm-hmm. There's no one on the other side saying, if you don't pay me back, I'm going to come in and punish you because it's, it's yeah. borrowed from the government itself and it's printed. Yeah. And I think I'm going to repeat it because it's important that people understand, right? The Bank of England, which is part of the government, is allowed to print money and they do print money. This is where money comes from. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so that's what's happening, right? And this is... This is so important for ordinary people to understand. It's a massive step away from how government financing normally works. And it's kind of like a bit of a magic trick. Like you might have heard this term in the media, magic money tree. People say, mm-hmm. oh, there's no magic money tree. Yeah. You know, we but can't then pay money for that. just magically appears. There's millions that magically appears to go somewhere for some purpose. Yeah, there's no magic money. There's no magic money tree. There's no magic money tree. We can't pay for that. And then suddenly COVID happens. Bam, we found the magic money tree. We're going to pay for it. We got 450 billion pounds mm-hmm. out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. And um, it seems amazing, right? Because it's like, we get the money. Fantastic. 
Nobody paid for it. No, nobody, you know, you, you didn't get taxed. I didn't get taxed. The rich guys didn't get taxed. Um, the money just came from nobody. There's no losers, right? Like, it just seems like a free lunch, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, there is no free lunch. There's going to be consequences from this. We need to understand what the consequences are. Like, the listeners need to understand what the consequences are because, unfortunately, you know, my predictions are that the big losers from this are going to be ordinary people, ordinary families, especially poorer families. And um, yeah, what we want to do today is basically explain why, how it works, how it goes to the system, who wins, who loses, how you can protect yourself. So this leads me on to exactly that next question. So the Bank of England prints money, which means that the money in circulation quadruples or increases in volume in terms of the the number of banknotes, the number, the amount of currency out there available. I think one of the common things that I think people will realize is if there's a lot of cash around, then typically in economics, the price of goods and services will then go up. That's inflation. So for the everyday person, what is the impact of that 450 billion quid? for the everyday person with all of that money being printed and it has been in circulation it's still in circulation right now because yeah, we, we are looking at inflation numbers creeping up and they're, they're predicting yeah. inflation is going to increase there's a lot of arguments around that being you know uh clog ups with supply chains and so on and so forth and some of the stuff that couldn't work because of covid but what does it actually mean where's the real rub yeah so that, that's the i think you you've hit the important point there which is that money it doesn't disappear. Once you print the money and you give it out, then that means plain and simply, somebody has more money. Mm-hmm. If you add up the amount of money everybody has, there's mm-hmm. going to be 450 billion more now than there was before COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so when COVID started, like, you know, my main thing is inequality, right? So for me, I, I want to know who gets the money because for me, that's important, right? Mm-hmm. So I was sitting down beginning of COVID, like March last year, I was sitting on my sofa and I was trying to figure out who's got this money because actually it's quite confusing if you think about it, right? Because the money is getting printed, it's going to the government and then they're giving it to furloughed workers, right? So you're going to think, okay, well, the furloughed workers have the money. But actually, if you think about the furloughed workers, yeah, they're getting furlough money, but that is just replacing the wages that they're no longer getting. So mm-hmm. they're not 450 billion pounds richer. In fact, they're slightly poorer, right? Because the furlough is only 80% of wages. Mm-hmm. So the people who are getting the money are not richer than pre-COVID. But we know somebody is. So it's like, it was a bit of a mystery. Like I was doing like a Sherlock Holmes thing. I know, you, I know somebody's rich, okay? It's not the furloughed workers who are the people who are getting the money. Okay, well, well, they're normally getting wages from the companies, right? So maybe the companies are richer, but the companies, they're all closed down, right? They've got, mm-hmm. got no incomes, right? The companies are not richer, okay? Mm-hmm. Right, well, okay, the photo of the workers are not richer. The companies are not richer. Where's the money, right? Well, the companies normally get the money from the customers, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the customers, these guys... For most of them, their incomes are protected because what furlough did was effectively protected almost everyone's incomes. I know yeah. there are people who stick yeah. those gaps. The, cu- the customers in general kept their incomes because most people did, but they cut their spending because you can't go on holiday. You can't go to expensive bars. You can't go to expensive restaurants. You just can't spend any of that stuff. So suddenly the customer spending collapsed. So the people who are accumulating money are the customers. 
But now remember, it's £10,000 per adult, right? And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm guaranteeing that some of the listeners are thinking, well, I'm a customer. I, I ain't got, got £10,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And that is because not all customers are created equal, right? Some customers, their spending collapsed. And other customers, their spending didn't. Now, if you're an ordinary person or a lower income person, and you know I come from a lower income background, all of your spending is essential spending. It's rent, yeah. it's mortgage, it's bills, it's food. Well, you ain't saving no money on COVID because you're still paying the rent or the mortgage and the mm -hmm. bills and the food, right? So, so ordinary and poorer families didn't save any money as customers because their spending is all in essentials. The spending which stopped was like what we call discretionary spending, like extra spending, like luxury mm -hmm. spending, like holidays, like going to the cinema, like going to the theater, like going to bars, right? And who are the people who have high discretionary spending? It's richer people and higher income people. Like if you are like super rich, you might spend like a hundred grand a year on those non-essentials. If you're super rich, very rich people will do that, right? So suddenly they're, they're racking up a hundred grand a year, right? So that's the reason why an ordinary person didn't get their 10 grand is because the richest people start accumulating a hundred grand or 200 grand, you know, mm -hmm. what's Jeff Bezos' discretionary spend? It's going to be millions a year, you know? How much does Jay-Z spend on these luxuries? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's going to be millions of pounds, right? So richer people accumulated millions of pounds during COVID because they're no longer spending money. And that spending used to drive ordinary people's wages. But instead, ordinary people are now getting their wages from the government. So that means in normal times, money kind of flows around in a circle, right? Which is rich people spend a lot of money because they're rich and they can. Mm -hmm. That drives ordinary people's wages. Mm -hmm. But then ordinary people need to pay the bills, pay the mortgage, pay the rent. And we discussed in the last podcast, that money doesn't disappear. It goes to the owners of the companies, the owners of the properties, the owners of your mortgage, mm -hmm. who are the rich people. Mm -hmm. So there's a cycle, right? The rich pay your wages with their high spending. And then you pay the riches incomes with your rent, your mortgage, your bills, everything you pay, a little cut of it is going to the owners of the assets who are the mm -hmm. rich, right? And if, if anybody doesn't understand that, they should definitely go back and listen to the last podcast, What is Wealth, or my YouTube video, What is Wealth, um, to explain how that money you spend goes to richer people because mm -hmm. they own the assets, right? So normally there's a cycle, right? Rich spend, and you spend, right? And it goes around. But suddenly in COVID, the rich not spending, but you're still spending because your money is on essentials, right? Mm -hmm. So the rich keep their income and your money's coming from the government. And the money, rather than going around in a circle, just starts to pile up in the bank accounts of the rich. So I came out in like March last year, put a few articles. There's one like for Open Democracy called Follow the Money, basically, following the money trail, saying, look, what is going to happen as a result of this is a massive increase in cash held by the rich. All right, what's the knock-on effect of that? Well, rich people, um, even though they do have high spending, they actually spend a much lower percentage of their income than ordinary people. And that's because their income is so high. Again, mm -hmm. we explain this on what is wealth, right? Yep. Um, what they do with the most of their income is buy assets. Mm -hmm. So they are going to take that, they're going to stack up that cash and they're not going to just sit on it. They're going to go out and buy stocks and shares. And most importantly, for ordinary people, they're going to buy houses. Mm -hmm. so, so I came out at the beginning of COVID and said, look, house prices are going to go through the roof after COVID because we're basically fixing this crisis by just stuffing the bank accounts of the rich with cash. And they're mm -hmm. going to use that to buy houses, right? And obviously everybody at the beginning of COVID was saying, you know, economic disaster, house prices will go down. You can see like the Guardian article saying that. And I was saying, no, this is wrong, right? House prices are going to go up. And uh, you know, patting myself on the back here, we can see now, we can see that's happening, right? Yeah, but that has happened though. That has happened. I've seen even locally where I'm at in Shropshire, house prices are going through the roof and people moving houses and buying houses. And it's like, hang on a second, when did, in Shropshire, when did house prices get to this level? 
yeah, it's, it's going. But it's, it's because crazy. it's because we us as a society, obviously not you and me, probably not the listeners. The way we've dealt with COVID is, you know, normally when there's a disaster, you might think, well, we need to go and tax the richest because those are the guys who can help us get through a disaster. Mm. But here we've used this kind of like one neat trick to fix the economy, which is, well, we don't need to tax no one. We'll just print it. You know what I mean? And that seems fine, but it has this consequence of, okay, well, that money ends up with the rich. They use that to buy houses. And then, well, what happens when your kid needs a house and suddenly a house in Shropshire costs, you know, half a million pounds, you know what I mean? And they're making 20, 25 grand, which is, you know, an ordinary wage. How are you going to buy a half a million pound house? Like this is the consequence. And like nobody in the media is really talking about this, right? Especially the media that faces ordinary people, right? And Mm -hmm. people are being presented with this image of, oh man, we just fixed, we're we're like economic magicians. You know, we fixed the economy. Mm -hmm. We didn't tax you. We didn't tax nobody. Nobody lost their job. Nobody had to pay any more taxes. It's like magic trick. But then behind the scenes and ordinary people don't see this, right? Because if you're an ordinary person, your income didn't change and your savings maybe went up a little tiny bit and you're like, oh, I made an extra like two grand, you know, I'm happy, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, oh, great, I made two grand. But you don't realize that behind the scenes, Jay-Z saved up 10 million pounds extra, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not just Jay-Z, right? It's these people working in the city. They made an extra, like, they probably, they made an extra like, 100 grand each, you know what I mean? You don't realize that they're stacking money. And you might think, well, who cares if the rich are stacking money? Like, it doesn't affect me. But your kids are competing with their kids to buy houses. And if they're all getting 100 grand, then how are you going to get a house? Like, you know, this is a this is a depressing. I'm aware this is a depressing message, right? but people like, need to know it. It's true though, because it's almost like a vicious cycle. And you know, since our conversation last week, it definitely made me kind of think about things very, very differently. Particularly when we do sort of talk about, you know, the wealth and and actually participating in this. Because, like you say, for the ordinary person, most people are just concerned about paying bills, the mortgage, the electricity, the council tax. And part of what I'm trying to do is obviously talk about, you know, you need to be participating in that wealth creation game. But it's so much deeper than just stocks and shares and investing in the stock market. It's so much deeper than that. It is, it's almost like the tip of the iceberg, really, to be honest. There's a massive, massive, like, bit underneath the water, underneath the surface that we don't tend to realize. And when we talk about things like the money printing, like you're saying, it's like this magic bullet, boom, nobody got taxed. There's all this money there. We can survive. We're able to replace wages. But actually, the long-term consequences for this, even maybe for us in the immediate medium to, you know, short-term, 10 years, 15 years, we might feel this right now. But our children will definitely feel this right now because Mm. I know that you're big on the whole inequality. The only thing that this is going to stand to do is make that gap bigger and bigger and bigger because there's so much more wealth being accumulated at the top end at the top 1% that the the divide between the rest of the population becomes just vast. That is, that is such a good point. And it's something that I've been trying to communicate more recently, right? Because, you know, the big number one consequence of this way of dealing with COVID, of just printing money, is a big increase in house prices, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people in this country, I'm very aware, not everybody, do own or their their family owns the house that they live in, right? I think it's like 75, 80% owner-occupied housing in this country. Mm -hmm. And then the house price goes up and they think like, this is great, my house price went up, like I'm 50 grand richer, right? Um, So then it's sort of like, everybody feels like a winner. And this this is the magic of money printing because all the prices go up, everybody feels like a winner, right? But you don't realize that, you know, your house price went up 50 grand, but the richer families have stacked up 200 grand here, right? And then 
you can't actually take that 50 grand unless you sell your house okay but if you sell your house how are your kids going to get houses now yeah. like, and this is the thing that really worries me right and i think this is why you see like a massive like division by age in attitude towards politics and political parties because older people who own property they feel like they're winning here whereas younger people who don't own property they can see oh my god how am I ever going to get a house? Yeah, and yeah, I, I, yeah. I just want older people to sit and think like, okay, look, I know you feel richer because your house price went up, but the only way for you to get that is to sell the house and look realistically at what incomes are and house prices are and think about if I sell the house, what are my kids going to do? Like think like in the long term, what's happening is poor and ordinary families are losing their houses. That is the long-term picture here. And that yeah. is increasing inequality. And, 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 and the maddest thing is ordinary families, especially older people who might own property, are happy about it because they don't realize what's happening. You know what? I can 100% back that because, you know, in my career as financial planning and stuff, this is the trend that I've, that I've seen in the past. I've seen a situation where uh, mum and dad had a property, but mum and dad died. So in order for the kid to take control of that asset, guess what they've got to pay if it's over the nil rate bands? inheritance tax. Now, the reality is that a lot of younger people who inherit properties or, or assets from their parents, either number one, have never thought about inheritance tax, it's never been in the planning. And when it isn't, they realize that all of a sudden, I've got to pay 40% of the value of anything over the new rate band, which means I've got cash that I need to go and find. Guess what? They're not cash, cash rich. Therefore, what do they have to do? They then have to sell that property in order to pay the tax bill in order to then receive cash that they then either go off and, you know, buy property with or clear debts or pay for university fees, pay down student loans, all that kind of stuff. And what that only does is that property that is appreciated in value over the course of their parents' lifetime now goes to who? Somebody exactly. who's got the cash. Exactly. That is what I was going to say. Who is the buyer of that house? That is what's happening. That is what I'm seeing. Like, you know, I focus on wealth. I focus on wealth inequality. And I, what, I see, listen, you know, I, I was, I come from a poor background and I went to like, you know, my primary school was a lot of poor kids, like recently immigrate, immigrated from Pakistan and stuff like this. But I passed my 11 plus and went to grammar school. So I've also got friends who are from richer families. Mm. And I see it. I see it all the time. My mates from poorer families. Their family has to sell the house. You know, there's a lot of people from like single parent families. The mom has to sell the house. And my mates from richer families, they're buying free. This is the houses are moving mm -hmm. from the poorer mm -hmm. families to the richer families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what does that mean for the next generation? You know what I mean? It's, um, yeah. But then at the same time, often the, and I totally understand this, people from poor and ordinary families, they just see how the house price went up and winning, but they don't realize like in the long run, if you print loads of money, everybody thinks they're winning but you're losing your house and they're getting your house. Yeah. And if that happens generation after generation, you know, my fear is we move increasingly into a sort of two tier society where there's this big chunk of 78% of people who just cannot own property. Because mm -hmm. once you lose that property, you know, I'm predicting house prices go up more, you know, if house prices go up to 700, 800 grand, that means unless you get the property, you're never getting one because you can't save up that kind of money. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, but that's my big concern is like this money printing, Ordinary families think they're winning when their house prices go up, but the actual net result is that, and I'm, I see it just like you see it in your day-to-day -day life. And I'm sure like anyone who's listening, who knows rich and poor families will be seeing it. The poorer families, when the house prices go up, they have to sell that. 
because they have to pay taxes, they have to pay for end of life care. Whereas richer families, they, they maybe know how to avoid inheritance tax, which is many ways to legally avoid it. And richer families often do avoid it. They do. They, they will use trusts and all kinds of offshore. Yeah, things. yeah, they, yeah. Or they'll give the money before yeah, they, they'll give the house yeah, before they die, in. this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like richer families end up accumulating property and other assets. It's not just about property and ordinary families are losing it. So like, yeah, man, I'm out here like shaking the chains, telling everybody, look, look what's actually happening here in terms of our society, in terms of the distribution. Um, yeah, and the money printing is just disguising it, man. And um, yeah, yeah, like we need to let people know that like, yeah, I know your house price is going up. I know you feel like a winner, but think generationally, think about your kids. Think about like the people in like your sort of, your group, people who have similar income to you, people you know, right? If you're from a poorer or ordinary income, you're seeing families losing property. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe your kids can get a property, but they need a half a million pound mortgage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas richer families are on the other side of this, stacking up the cash. They're, buying, they're paying cash for these things. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what's happening. And this kind of gets me to think, and I know this is almost an impossible question. And this is where, you know, I, w- I don't necessarily envy people in government because how do you actually go about and fixing this? I know that one of the big things that you talk about, and we spoke about this on the last episode was, you know, the requirement for there to be harsher and harder, higher taxation on the people who have got wealth right now. My big, I guess, concern for that is, okay, if you tax these guys, how does that aid with the wealth redistribution? Because ultimately, there has to be a system in place, because we've already kind of had a conversation this episode and last episode that the system is set up in such a way that the wealth still ends up at that top anyway. So if you tax them more, how can you ensure that it actually goes towards alleviating and reducing that that wealth divide from a systematic point of view? And I I don't have the answer to that, and I don't know whether you do or not, but it's it's, it's a complex, complex problem that that needs to be addressed. I think there's a couple of answers to that, right? Basically, so... First, and I really should do a video on this about the tax system fully, and I will get around to doing one, right? Um, the tax system is complicated, right? I mean, I'm sure you know a lot about it, right? But at the moment, if you work a job, 90% of people out there more, their main income is their job. You get taxed at source, right? The money mm-hmm. comes, it's already taxed. Right? You don't even have to worry about paying it, right? But, and it's, it can be high. You know, I paid 50%. It was a 50% man when mm-hmm. I worked, right? But it can be 45% if, you, if, you, if you're on a good income. But if you are very wealthy and if, I would encourage people to listen to the What Is Wealth podcast um, or watch the video. Um, If you are very wealthy, then your income doesn't come primarily from work. It comes from, you know, like we've said, you own someone else's mortgage, you own someone else's property, you own the companies, Mm -hmm. right? So you're getting capital gains, dividends, rent, interest, right? You're you're receiving this rather than Mm -hmm. paying it. Those things are taxed differently. They're often taxed at lower rates, even, and they're also often much more legally avoidable. Mm-hmm. So what that means is while ordinary people are out there paying 40-50% and you know I pay 50% of my income that I made, um, the super rich who are maybe, you know, who are maybe making billions without working are often paying nothing. Yeah, true. So yeah. when we say tax the rich more, that on the one hand, what, what some one thing that I say often is tax wealth, not work, mm-hmm. which is if we tax the rich more 
what that will enable us to do is to reduce your income tax or to reduce your VAT, which are the taxes that ordinary people pay. And that's going to increase your quality of life. So for me, it's not even necessarily about increasing taxes. It's about rebalancing taxes. It's about making sure that the super rich pay at the very least, the very least, the same rate that you or I pay or somebody out there who's working anywhere, man, working as a hairdresser, you know, working as an Uber driver, you know, working in the city, anywhere. Like these people are paying their 20, 40, 50% and the super rich are not paying anything. If that's the system that you have, it's pretty much inevitable that they're going to get richer and the rest of us are going to get poorer. Like, so for one, it's about a rebalancing, right? Like if, if you tax them more, you can tax us less. But, you know, another thing is like economically, you know, there are ways we don't even really necessarily need to tax these guys, right? Like I'm, I'm supporting like taxing them more 100% rather than taxing us. But you can encourage these guys or even force these guys to spend more money rather than just accumulating assets. If they mm-hmm. were to spend a lot more money, like that drives our wages, that drives mm-hmm. your wages, that drives the listener's wages, right? If they spend more money and sell their assets rather than just accumulating money and buying assets, that will make housing more affordable and that will make wages higher. So it's not even it's not even necessarily about taxation. It's about understanding the economic problem, which is if the rich are accumulating massive amounts of wealth, that means we have to pay them more every year. Mm-hmm. And it's us ordinary people that drive the economy because look, rich guys like Jeff Bezos makes 200 billion pounds a year. He don't eat like a billion meals a day. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, he, you know, he don't sleep in a billion beds like these guys, they can't drive the economy because they they are just one just individual people. But if all the income goes to them, then they're not going to spend enough. And that means we don't get good jobs. We don't get good wages. So what you need to do is reduce wealth inequality. And there's a million ways to do this. Like I've got an idea on my website, which is wealtheconomics.org, if anyone wants to see it, called the wealth time limit, which is, which is we just say, look, the rich can be as rich as they want, but they can only own their wealth for 120 years. They have mm. to spend it. Because if we allow them to just accumulate it and accumulate it, then on the one hand, the rest of us can never get it. It makes sense if you think about it. If we allow the rich to accumulate everything, then the rest of us who are not rich will never be able to get anything, right? You know, it, it does make complete sense because even if you look into things like the music world and royalties, that only lasts for a period of time. If you exactly. create a piece of work, you can only get paid in it across all mediums over a certain period of time. After that, time runs out. It's fair game for anybody to use it, fair use and so on and so forth. Exactly. And that does make sense. Is it a prince is only allowed to make money off Purple Rain for whatever, 50 years or whatever. Yeah. But, but Jeff Bezos's kids will be trillionaires for a thousand years. And, and mm. that's owning the land that we need, the properties that we need. You know, they literally own the physical earth. You know what I mean? But Prince's kids ain't allowed to own Purple Rain. You know what I mean? Like, mm. why do we allow families to own? And again, we talk about this in the What Is Wealth podcast. It's not just money in the bank. They are owning the buildings we live in. Mm-hmm. They are owning the land that produces the food that we eat. They are mm-hmm. owning the the factories that make the electricity, the power plants, you know what I mean? They're owning everything. We need these things and we're going to let them keep it forever. But, you know, we understand that, you know, if somebody makes an invention, they can't own it a thousand years after they're dead, but we let families own literally the food that we eat and the buildings that we live in for thousands of years. And if that's the situation, then yeah, of course, you'll be able to get Purple Rain for cheap on iPlayer, but you ain't going to be able to have a house. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? You cannot, if it's, it's, Really, it's not complicated. You know? I'm always trying to make economics, economics simple. Right? Look, there's only so much land, only so much buildings. You know, If you allow the rich to own everything, then of course, your kids, my kids, ordinary kids will own nothing. And if we don't change it, if we allow the rich to pay zero tax, while you and me and the people watching pay 20, 40, 50% tax, then that's what's going to happen. I, long, I want to get your thoughts on this then. So 
we obviously talk about, you know, one of the wealth, one of the things that the wealthy will do, and they always do this, is acquiring assets, properties, businesses that end up owning buildings and, you know, properties that you end up using for your business and your residential purposes, and they buy stocks and shares. Now, obviously, on my channel, I try and talk about investing in stocks and shares, getting in the early, being a participant in this whole stock market, owning pieces of companies. Depressingly, for every all the conversations that we've had over the last couple of weeks, it's almost like it still feels like a, such a small piece of such a large pie. How do we make inroads into ensuring that actually we can own more than maybe what our initial reaction is to it? Because, you know, it's all very well and good owning, you know, 500 shares or a thousand shares in Tesla, but is that really making a dent? Is that really helping towards that distribution of wealth that is created when you think about a company like Tesla or Amazon or someone like that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think you're, you're probably bringing us back to the important point is that this is about QE, right? We spoke about what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, people can go back and look at my article in March last year, April last year, when I said, look, there's way more money in the system. It's going to go to the rich. That's going to push house price up. It's going to push stock price up. That's already happened. Okay. Um, it will probably continue to happen. All right. So ordinary people need to understand that because ordinary people have a much higher tendency to store their wealth in just cash in the bank. All right. And that's totally understandable yeah, because people yeah. need cash in the bank um, and they're often not as sophisticated and they can't afford to take also the risks that richer people can take. Whereas richer people tend to own a lot more stocks and shares and they benefit much more from this massive increase in stock prices, right? So, you know, if I'm right, and this is going to continue to happen, then it's unwise for all their own people to just keep massive amounts of cash, cash in the bank. But mm -hmm. they need to understand that in the last year and a half, stock prices have gone up like 150% or something, depending mm -hmm. on what stock, you know, Amazon's gone up something stupid, like 500% or something, yeah. right? So, you know, what has happened, the increase in inequality has made it much more difficult for ordinary people to get a share of the pie because the stocks are all like three times as expensive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's bad. <laughs> that's not good, yeah. right? It makes it difficult. Um, but, you know, I think this will continue to happen. So ordinary people should try and participate in the stock market. But, you know, and I'm sure you do this all the time, they need to be aware that stocks are risky. Mm -hmm. They've gone up a lot in the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely potential for a fall, especially in like the more bubbly stocks, like you mentioned Tesla or like the big tech stocks in the US that have gone up a lot. Um, so unfortunately, ordinary people can't, uh, you can't afford to put money into stocks that you can't afford to lose, you know, mm -hmm. at least half of, because it's risky. You know, that's yeah. just the truth. Uh, you need to keep the money on the hand that you need, which means that ordinary people get hurt when asset prices go up because ordinary people have to keep some money in cash, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're fortunate enough to have a bit extra, yes, participate in the stock market, but understand that there's no guaranteed returns. There's huge volatility in the stock market. It's gone up a lot. It could come down a lot. So like, you know, ordinary people are being caught in a bit of a bind here. And what I always say is, um, for an ordinary person, especially a young person who probably doesn't own property, you should view stocks and shares as your gateway to getting a property. Mm -hmm. Because once you own that property, then you ain't paying rent. And that's a lot cheaper, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you need to do your research and find the property that's going to work for you long term. But get yourself into a property, then you don't have to worry about the, vol the volatility of the stock market. And when I say that, I fully understand how difficult it is for young people to get into it, right? But look, the most sensible thing that an ordinary person can do, you know, you say this yourself is, 
you have your emergency pot for things that you need. And, you know, if you're like a young single person, that might only be a grand, but if you've got a family, that might be five grand, six grand, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, yes, participate in stocks and shares if you can, um, but understanding there's volatility, but look for ways to get yourself on the property market. Right. And that might be, that might be, for example, going to your parents and trying to get them to help you to get a deposit. You know, which might mean doing things like remortgaging their property, right? Look, and, or releasing equity or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah. And look, I know these are extreme measures, right? But the fact is, we live in a world now where if you don't come from a rich family, it's extremely difficult to get property. And one thing that I see around me is friends that I know from poorer families, they don't really understand how friends from richer families are getting property because they don't know that behind the scenes, these people are receiving 100 grand, 200 grand from their parents, right? Um, so the fact is, and look, I wish it wasn't like this, but it is like this for most people, unless you're able to get a big chunk of money from your parents, it is extremely difficult to get property. Right. So, yeah, you know, if you can, and, and I'm aware everybody's family situation is different. And for a lot of people, parents are not able to provide significant financial support, but if you can, you need to try and sit down with your family and say, look, can we work out something together where you help me get on the property ladder and I pay you back and this kind of thing with like, th- these are, you know, and, you know, you, you're a professional financial advisor, so you, you will be, you'll be able to talk about these kind of things with people a lot. But like the fact of the matter is it's a two tier world already, realistically, rich families help their kids get properties and poor families, the kids don't get properties. So yeah. we need to start thinking as a fa- as family, as much as you can. And, yeah. and, and when I say that, I'm aware that a lot of families can't do that. And I wish it wasn't like that, which is what yeah. brings me on to my second point, which is look, the game is getting harder and harder for ordinary families. So as much as on the one hand, you need to do what you can for you and for your family and with your family and with your parents, you need to understand the game is rigged against us, right? Which is why I encourage people to become more politically engaged because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And like, listen, I was poor. And when I was poor, I wanted to be rich. I understand it, right? But the truth is, if this world keeps us in a situation where every single poor person just tries to hustle themselves out of it, we will all lose. Because mm-hmm. poor people are in a massive disadvantage here. And the only thing we have going for us is there's a lot of us. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if we're all individualized and separated and not working together, then we will all lose. Mm-hmm. So I know, listen, you know how it is, right? People from poor backgrounds, they're playing life on hard mode, right? You mm-hmm. need to do your hustle, but you also need to come together with other people and, you know, check out my videos on YouTube, telling people what's happening, share them, tell people, look, if we don't fix inequality, it's our kids who are going to suffer. Spread that message because Ultimately, the only way that ordinary people are going to win in the long run is by using the one thing they have got going for them, which is that there's more of them and they have political power to unite. Yeah. So it's it's about balance, man. Do your hustle, do your thing, you know, watch your channel, Pete, which tells people what to do. You know, I talk about it on my channel as well, but you also need to use your power as a group because really that's the only game that is rigged in your favor because there's a lot more ordinary people than there are super wealthy. But if you try, if you try and like, if you try and compete in a stock market, you know, I talk about this. Look, if you're in the stock market, a good return nowadays, you'll know this, Pierre. If you can make five, six, seven percent, that's a good return. All right. Yeah, but dude, but Gary, mate, people these days, because of Instagram, think that a five six percent return is ridiculous. People expect 20, 25%. And I'm like, what planet do you live on? And yeah. this is because of social media and the hype and just charlatans out there. And you said it last week, and I completely agree. If you live in London, 
and I only own a property because I was able to get my deposit because I worked in Canary Wharf and I worked my ass off. But if you live in London and you're earning 100, 150 grand a year, you would still struggle to qualify for the mortgage multiples to get a flat in London if you wanted a decent flat. It is absolutely bonkers. It's yeah. crazy to it's think It's crazy, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got a mate, like, he works in fashion. He recently got a job and, like, you know, making quite good money, like 80, 90 grand a year. And he was like, yeah, I'm a boy. And I'm gonna get a house, and then like, actually, he had he moved back in with his mom, and like, look, this guy's you know that's a lot of money in fashion. Fashion is a yeah. competitive game, you know. And like, he's out there like saving, 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 and he's still struggling. And like, the house price has got quicker than his savings, man. Yeah. Like, and that is why ordinary people are at home thinking I need to make 20 25 percent because it's the only way to get a house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but like these Instagram guys, like you know, anyone who's selling you 20 25 percent, especially like. You can make that, but only by taking massive risks. Massive risks. Like, yes. Massive risks, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, be careful of anyone who's promising you that. Like, anyone out listening, like, seriously, like, the reality of the situation is if you can make five, seven, even if you can make 10%, you're doing fantastically, right? In this game. But then think about what that means, right? Like, if you're an ordinary person who comes into the game with like 20 grand savings, which is a good chunk, you know, it's not, not easy to save 20 grand, mm -hmm. right? If you make 10%, which is a phenomenal return, you're making two grand a year, two right? Grand, yeah. But if you come in with two million pounds and you make 10%, you're making 200 grand a year, yeah. right? So this game is so rigged in favor of the rich. You know what I mean? I, I made a lot of money in the city so I can live off of investments, right? But the truth is ordinary people, you can't expect to make a massive amount of return. It's for ordinary people, it's a slow build up, build up just to get that house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what you need to do. And um, yeah, we spoke about it last time, right? But anyone on the internet who's promising you like, to be honest, anything 10% or above, like if they're not, bringing that with a massive disclaimer which is what i'm selling you is really risky because anything make you 10 percent has to be risky then walk away really because these guys are not being honest with you yeah absolutely and i think it, as well you know this is what this channel and gary's channel is all dedicated to is to is to have these real conversations so that people can listen like this is not about hyping this is not a joke this isn't about getting rich quickly on my part certainly because at the end of the day these things have consequences these things have impacts not just for our immediate lives but for everything that we do moving forward and unfortunately the education isn't there traditionally to empower us with this kind of knowledge from the get-go when we're young unless you get it from home and really the people that get it from home are the wealthy people which means that they're raising their kids to understand the value of property and assets and how markets move and and the value of money and how to leverage money into the stock market to create that wealth that you know Gary just described there two million quid is going to get you two hundred thousand it's life-changing amounts of money it's about having honest conversations without blowing smoke up people's asses to understand this is this is this is the long slog this is the hard work that you need to do. This is the reality that we're facing. And it is no joke. And if you don't do anything about it today, from a personal point of view, or as a society, we don't band together and actually use our collective strengths as people to try and change the system that has enabled this to happen. The only thing that will happen moving forward is more of the same, and it will just get worse. And I know that, that you're very, very passionate about that whole, the political side of really getting people to understand and use the, the collective power from a voting political point of view. And that isn't saying, you know, vote Labour or Conservative, but understand the value and the strength that you have in collective power and actually demanding changes in, in the system that we live in. Yeah, like, um, yeah, it's, 
it's, it's like what you say, it's not, it's not about necessarily supporting a political party, right? It's about pushing for what we need, which is a more equal system. You know what I mean? Just demand that what we need is a more equal system and insist that you're going to push for it and like push the message out and get people behind it. I mentioned last time about Brexit, you know, a lot of the powerful people didn't want Brexit to happen. And, you know, a lot of people don't like Brexit, right? People mm-hmm. are like, the fact is a lot of people wanted it to happen and it got it to happen. And like the reason like, why I do what I do, like, you know, I've said a lot of things on this podcast, which, which are not positive and are depressing, you know, like the truth is the game is rigged against ordinary people, right? But look, I wouldn't do this, what I do, you know, I walked away from a very well-paid job to do this because I think things can be better. Things can be changed. And like, I know the game is difficult for ordinary people, but I believe that if ordinary people are, are told honestly what is happening and what they need to do, they can do it. They can do their work and they can make their money and they can come out on the side and get together and say, but we need to push for a fairer system. And if we do that, the amount of improvement that people can see in their lives is unbelievable. You know, like like some people say to me, it's not possible, but you know, like, you know, I I studied economics for a long time. I studied economic history, right? If you look back at what happened after the second world war, people came back from the war, right? They was forced to kill and die for their country. And they said, no, you know what? We want education and we want healthcare and we want housing and we we want the rich to pay for it. And mm-hmm. it happened. And people all over Europe did that. And in the US did that. And then what happened, right? In the 50s and 60s, you know, before the Second World War, life was very, very difficult for ordinary people, right? And I'm not saying that the 50s and 60s were like heaven, but suddenly everyone had healthcare. Everyone had education. Yeah. It was, if you were willing to work, you could get property. You know what I mean? Like my parents' generation, you know, I come from an area in East London with a big immigrant community. A lot of people came over from Pakistan, India. They worked hard in shops, man. And they got three, four houses now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that is what is possible if we build a more equal system and we achieved that after the second world war, but we're letting it go now, we're letting us move into a more unequal system. But what I want people to realize is if we come together and demand it, and we don't let them like sell us out by our house prices going up by 20, 30 grand, then we can have that better system. We can have that better system, but like, look, we're a long way away from it right now, but we can have it, but we need to demand, look, stop taxing just us and tax the rich too. Make yeah. them pay. Like, look, you know, I know that I made a lot of income, you know what I mean? But I paid 50% on everything I made to take my family out of the, out of the hood, you know what I mean? Like, just mm-hmm. to make sure that my family can have houses to live in, right? And the Duke of Westminster inherited £9 billion and paid no tax, you know what I mean? Like, that is... Why, why are people insane. out there? People out there, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're waking up every morning at 7am to go and work, but you're paying 20, 40, 50%. The Duke of Westminster made nine billion pounds without getting out of bed and paid no tax. That is not acceptable, right? We need to, these guys need to contribute. And like, you know, and in the end, when your kids are going out there, competing with the Duke of Westminster's kid to buy a house to live in, who's going to win? You know what I mean? Like, so, so look, you know, I know I I said some, sometimes some of my messages are depressing and I made my money by betting that the future will be bad. But that is if we don't do anything. If we come together and do something, then it can be better. And we've done it before. You know, I know it was 70 years ago, but like, like I say, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that if people actually come out and united and push for a better system, it wasn't possible. The thing is though, I think, you know, actions speak louder than words a lot of the times. And I think this is the one thing that I do like about you and really stuck out when I had the first conversation with you. Cause like you, you kind of like grill me and ask me some really tough questions. You wanted to make sure that I'm not like all these other guys, but the simple fact of the matter is this. A lot of people, when they, from our backgrounds, from poor backgrounds, when they make a lot of money, they'll just be like, oh, I'm cool now. That's it. I'm, I'm in that bracket now where I don't have to worry. Even though you've done really, really well and you're a millionaire in your own right, you are taking your time to try and change things for everybody else. And that 
speaks volumes because a lot of people will just be like, oh, I'm sweet. I'm sweet. I've, I've got my piece of the pie now. I know that I can be comfortable. I know that I don't have to work. I can live off some investment income and just do my things and, and all of that. I don't need to worry about putting a message out there. That's what's great about you. And I think that, you know, if anybody is listening to this, you need to go and follow Gary's channels. Uh, Gary's economy uh, economics on YouTube, same thing on Instagram, same thing on Twitter, because this is a really important message. We have to be more um, organized and we have to be more intellectually switched on and attuned to what is going on. Because at the end of the day, we talk about financial education. I talk about it all the time and investing in all this kind of stuff. There is, and I understand why there is a short-term view a lot of the time, but this is not about just tomorrow. It's about next week, next month, 10 years, 15, 20 years, 40 years time. It is about what happens after we are long gone. And the changes and the things that we're able to do now will be the beginning and can be an indicator of things to change. If we do nothing, it's only going to get worse. And I guess that's really been the message from the two episodes that I've had with Gary here, just to really hopefully get people to think about what it is we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yes, it's very easy to get you know, caught up in the cycle of going to work and paying bills, but are we really thinking about how we're going to change our own circumstances and you know, try, and even if it is just little by little, getting ownership, participating in wealth creation. And I talk a lot about investing in the stock market. I share with you guys what my personal investment strategy is. Yes, I own Tesla and Amazon and all these other companies, but the risk is very, very high. I prefer to take a core satellite approach, buying ETFs and index funds that help me diversify the risk. That doesn't mean that's going to be the right approach for you, but you have to understand approaching the stock market can wipe you out if you don't know what you're doing. And if you're listening to people on YouTube and on just on Instagram without really putting any critical thought or research behind what you're seeing and what you're hearing, you can wipe yourself out. And my biggest fear is that first-time investors, people who like these kind of messages, go and try and invest in the stock market, have a really bad time, and that puts them off. And now they don't want to participate in it anymore because they got stung. This is about long-term progression. And yes, we need to take baby steps, but it also requires your time and your dedication, your focus and your attention. This is not a quick win. This is not a short-term strategy. This is very much long-term. And I guess that's where I want to leave this episode of the podcast. Gary will be doing a live with me on YouTube on September the 5th. I'll post about that in the community section on on YouTube. But mate, it's been amazing having you on for a couple of weeks on, on the podcast. It's been really really great and it's been a pleasure to meet you as well so thank you so much all right it's no problem at all man it's been been nice to meet you man thanks for having me cool man so guys there it is go follow gary i'll put all of the links in the show notes to this episode remember money is a tool life is for living that's what it's all about at the end of the day i will catch you next week thank you for listening to today's podcast if you enjoyed the episode be sure to check out other episodes and share with the people closest to you new to investing check out peter's course for first-time investors designed to give you the foundation you need if you prefer one-on-one coaching book a complimentary discovery with the man himself all links in the show notes